Welcome to Misunderstood, a podcast dedicated to better understanding MS and learning to live well with MS. I'm your host, Katie Sloan. Our usual reminders as we begin. I am not an expert. I'm just a person like you living with MS and trying to make the best of it. Misunderstood is based on my personal experience, what I've learned from my doctors, other care providers, and my own solutions-oriented research and pattern-finding obsession. While the majority of the information I share has been vetted by doctors, I am not a doctor. My intention is that you use the information shared here as a springboard for discussion between you and your doctor regarding your future care options. And lastly, MS impacts each of us uniquely. I hope to shine a light on a wide range of approaches and strategies for living better with MS. But what you choose to do with that information is always your choice, and what works for one may not work for all. In our previous episode, we talked about behavioral activation. I've received feedback that this is really helping people, myself included. So if you haven't tried this approach but are curious about it, revisit the previous episode. It's such a simple concept, yet yields great results in both mood and productivity. This week, we're joined by an incredible naturopath, Dr. Casey. She'll provide a clear overview of what it means to be a naturopath doctor and some of the many ways she helps her patients find their way to better health. Before we hop into our conversation with Dr. Casey, my gratitude this week is for grass. Not cannabis, although I am very grateful for that as well, since it's a powerful anti-inflammatory pain reliever and restorative sleep aid. But in this particular case, I'm talking about your typical lawn grass, and in my yard specifically, tall fescue. Did you know that there are about 12,000 types of grass? The most popular are fescue, Bermuda, and Kentucky bluegrass. I've actually learned a lot about grass these past few years, My partner follows the brilliant Alan Hain, also known as the lawn care nut, and has, as a result, developed his own healthy obsession with caring for our lawn. He has a striping kit so he can mow intricate patterns into the lawn. It's currently argyle, and he even bought a small drone so he can take aerial photos of the lawn. All of that is pretty fascinating to me, and yet... This past week, I really started thinking about the grass itself when Eric reminded me of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. That Google search led me down the rabbit hole where I stumbled upon something that grabbed my attention and held it. I found a WordPress site called My Small Surrenders, a perspective on living with chronic pain. I learned that the author, who does not identify themselves by name or gender, lives with chronic pain that comes with a yet-to-be-diagnosed illness. They also shared that they live with pain every day, and that they hope, quote, that writing about it will help me to cope and maybe help someone else who reads it feel a little less alone. I'll get to their poem about grass in a moment, but first, I wanted to share just a few recent post titles to likewise intrigue you to further explore this site. Drawing to Cope with Trauma, Surviving Social Isolation with a Chronic Illness, and The Creative Upside of Insomnia. Definitely some thought-provoking content I plan to delve deeper into at some point. This site popped up on my grass Google search because one of their recent posts was called 
Gratitude and Creativity, A Blade of Grass. The author explains that they watch Penny Dreadful, a television series that ran for three seasons beginning in 2014, and that a particular episode called A Blade of Grass really struck them and inspired their poem. I have not seen this show, although I might need to now, but the author explains that the main character, Vanessa, played by Eva Green, relives the intense trauma of her past in that episode. Without further ado, I'd like to share this beautiful poem written by the author who signs the poem as My Small Surrenders. A Blade of Grass Not even a blade of grass can stand tall without the strength of others, huddled shoulder to shoulder around it with roots anchored deep below dark earth, shielding its emerald sheath from perishing beneath the ravaging elements seeking to tramp it down. Nor can it survive without the force of life at work within it, which it hungrily siphons from heaven's rained drops and beamed warmth as they tumble down waves of billowing breezes to settle in the sheen of its sharply cut green coat, aiding it to reach ever higher. For, as we know, in this world, not even a blade of grass can thrive without a slight touch from love. <sighs> Beautiful. After reading the poem for the first time, I started to look at the tall fescue in our yard a little differently to not only appreciate the beautiful mowing patterns or lush greenness, but to really appreciate up close how each blade is, as the author so eloquently shared, huddled together, shoulder to shoulder, standing tall, supporting one another. This is not, dear listener, much different than how we, as people living with MS, can be significantly stronger together. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Through sharing who we are with one another, our roots deepen and intertwine, and we can better anchor one another to hold firm when we encounter storms that rage overhead from time to time. Thank you for being a part of my support network and helping me stand tall when facing adversity. Just knowing you are listening gives me the strength to persevere and to continue growing through the challenges I face on my quest to live well with MS. As Neil Barrington, who is the coordinator of the global charity Project Hope, said, the grass is greener where you water it. So today, our tall fescue also reminds me to nurture myself and my fellow MS community. By standing tall in our support of each other, we too will thrive. Today, we are joined by an incredible naturopath, Dr. Casey Berkebau. To prepare for this episode, I met with Dr. Casey in early April to hear her story and learn more about her practice so I could craft my questions for our official recording session later that month. I was immediately drawn to her as she's an incredibly warm and caring person who connects with others rapidly and in genuine fashion. 
I found I was not alone in feeling this way when I did more research and read her glowing patient reviews. Recurring themes are gratitude for her warm and caring nature as a partner in achieving better health, being an astute and compassionate listener, and her brilliant ability to identify and then treat the root cause of illness, and how through her care for patients, she ultimately ends up feeling like an integral part of many families. Let's listen in on my recent conversation with Dr. Casey to learn more about the naturopathic approach to healthcare. Okay, Dr. Casey, I'd like to welcome you today to Misunderstood. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. We're going to dive right in, and I'd really love to start our conversation by asking for some clarification. Uh, Many of us often hear the terms naturopathic, functional, integrative, and homeopathic, and wonder if they're the same or how they differ. Uh, Can you help us gain some clarity on that? Absolutely. I think that's a great question and a super important one. Um, So with, with the way it works, so We are, we do go to actual medical school. It's a four-year program that has a lot of overlap uh, with medical, traditional medical school programs. Our second two years are just a slightly different focus because we do have to learn all the alternative medicine on top of the primary care medicine. At the end of schooling, we do take a licensing exam. And then in about 20 something states at at this point, we have licensure to practice medicine by the state. So it's a really important thing to know if your naturopath has that licensure. In some states, we don't have it where they have to act more as a health coach, but you can still check the school that they went to and make sure that it is an actual physical location. It is not an online program. And I think that that's very important. And we've really worked with states to try and get the word naturopath to mean a doctor, though not all states have accommodated that at this point. Um, So it's really important to make sure that the person that you're seeing has done some actual training, is licensed by your state, or at least is gone to an accredited school before you see them. Um, We do study homeopathy. That's a common um, confusion. Um, Homeopathy is a very old medicine um, that's been around for a long time. We do training in it. It is not our primary focus though. We do use drugs at times. They absolutely have a time and a place. Uh, We also use a lot of diet, lifestyle, nutrition, herbs, supplements. So we look at the whole person and how to make them well. That's really one of the big differences. Functional medicine is another confusion, a confusing thing for a lot of folks at times. Functional medicine is some version of a practitioner, even a chiropractor or a nutritionist or or a medical doctor who has gone and done some weekend trainings over a period of time and has learned some about what's considered alternative medicine. So that's a common misnomer as well. I would say that naturopaths, our base training is actually functional medicine. That is what our foundational approach to health actually is and the basis for our, our whole medical education. And I think that's an important distinction as well. Great. Thank you. Yeah. I don't think I fully understood that until just now. So thank you for that clarification. Absolutely. Is there anything else you wanted to share about those different topics or specifically about what you do as a naturopath? 
Sure. So I am a little bit special in that I also did some training in Chinese herbs and acupuncture. So I actually will use some of both in my practice. And that also will apply to some of the things I know we're going to talk about around MS as well. So my approach is a little bit different than maybe a just, just naturopath who's trained. Um, but I think it just augments what I end up practicing with my patients. That's excellent. Now, another big question that people often have is, is this branch of medicine covered by insurance? Another good question. Uh, my answer is yes and no. <laughs> um, in the state of California where I am based or my practice is based, we are working on that. At this point, the state has not mandated that insurance has to accept us as primary care, even though the state sees us as primary care. So we have been working and lobbying to do that. We have been encouraging patients who want more access to naturopathic medicine to also help us lobby their, their congressional members. And what we can do at this point is provide super bills for patients to submit to their insurance. They basically see us as an out of network practitioner. So if they do have out of network coverage, they often will get some reimbursements. And a lot of other states like California, Oregon, Arizona, we actually are all, we are covered by insurance in a lot of those states. Um, our licensure has been a lot longer in those states. California is a little bit of a baby as far as licensure goes, but we are absolutely working for that. And I think it's important for people to speak out for what healthcare they want access to as well. That's wonderful. So listeners, let's do our part and see what we can do to help this come to fruition. Excellent. Now, I, I do want to ask some questions about you. I often find that there's really important elements in our journeys to the work we do. So can you share a little bit about your journey to this work? Sure. Uh, let's see where to start. Uh, my original intention as an undergrad, uh, my undergrad degree was in cell biology and chemistry, and my original intent had been to go to a traditional Western medicine, allopathic medicine uh, school for my graduate training. I decided I wanted to take a year off and do some other things before I just jumped straight back into school. In that time period, I ended up doing a lot of traveling. I'd go work and and then come home or, and then go travel, come home, work, go travel. Uh, one year quickly turned into three years. And at that point I had seen some other forms of medicine in some of my travels. And I came home feeling like there had to be more to treating people than just drugs and surgery. I really just didn't know what that was. So I was actually looking at some other graduate programs that were completely outside of medicine. A friend who owned a sustainable living center in a small remote village in Costa Rica asked me to come down based on some of my previous training to do some medicinal plant documentation with a 70 year old indigenous Costa Rican woman who was known for some of her healing and, no and knowledge of the herbs. So I actually went down to document plants and live with her during that time period. Um, and actually while I was there, my friend who also lived in the same village told me about a school outside of Seattle where I was from and had been living uh, that was a naturopathic college and that she had a friend going to school there and that I should really look into it. So when I got back to the States, I contacted her, I went and toured the school and immediately knew I wanted to do both programs, actually both the Chinese medicine and the naturopathic medicine. And I had no idea it was there and it was in my backyard the whole time. So basically as soon as I toured it, look at, looked at the curriculum, I started working on my application at that point. So I had to go basically halfway around the world to find something that was in my backyard. <laughs> I love that story. Isn't that, that's just fascinating to me. What a wonderful experience you must have had traveling the world and, and doing this important work. 
Oh, wow. Um, I'd love to hear a a little bit about your work with people that have MS or other autoimmune conditions. And what are the main areas you focus on? And how does the work you do benefit folks with MS or autoimmune? So a lot of the time when people ask me my specialty, I will often say women's health and hormones. What falls under that though is also a lot of autoimmune issues, digestive issues, skin issues, and of course, you know, the hormone and stuff and all that comes along with that. So my specialty is not MS in particular, but I have definitely worked with patients with MS over the years. Uh, My experience with patients with MS, you know, what I find has been helpful. It's a little bit different for everybody. So there's kind of a few things that I typically will look at. Uh, I definitely think hormones are really important. A couple examples of that are, and this has come from my patient experience as well. So some women do much better at certain periods of their life and others have a harder time. So what I mean by that is, for instance, pregnancy, some women have uh, basically a remission of their autoimmune condition while they're pregnant. Others have an exacerbation while they're pregnant. So how every system responds to the hormones is very, very different. With any sort of autoimmune condition or hormone underlying hormone condition, I will always advocate that women understand that anytime there's a big hormonal change in their life, they are more susceptible to have flares and different things. So for instance, pregnancy is a big one. Stopping breastfeeding is a big one. And then of course, menopause. And so even when I'm seeing patients before they're hitting menopause, I always want to make sure they understand that that change may be coming. Uh, digestion is another really, really huge piece of that, whether in, in all autoimmune conditions, the gut is absolutely huge. And we know that pretty clearly at this point, there's a really great researcher at UC Davis, who's done a lot of research on this and anytime there's underlying constipation, diarrhea, it's really important to start looking at those and make sure we can try and get bowel movements going. Obviously with MS, with the nerve nerves being impacted, digestion can slow. Sometimes there can be bacterial or yeast overgrowth that accompany that and can then make it worse. And so making sure that bowel movements are actually happening and that there's not any underlying imbalances in the, in the bugs that are in our gut is, is super, super important with any autoimmune, but especially so with MS. And then diet is also huge. Um, for some of us, the, the foods that we eat, even when they are considered healthy, can be foods that we don't do well with. And so looking at individual responses to foods, making sure there's variety in the diet, again, making sure you're pooping on a regular basis and the foods are facilitating that, not slowing it down, all super, super important parts of things. Because in reality, I think on some level, we all know that whole foods are probably better for us. Again, it comes down to education, making sure you have the energy to prep some of those healthy foods for you, making sure you're staying hydrated. All those things are, are really, we consider them really basic, but you'd be really surprised at how much education we have to do around diet and lifestyle for patients. And it's important. Uh, The other thing that I often look at for patients with MS is any sort of chemical or environmental exposure. Over the years, I've had a few different instances um, of some of the symptoms manifesting where I've seen heavy metals be an issue for those patients. Heavy metals can be really damaging to nerves. And so if there's a lot of them present, it can be problematic. So at times that's something I'll look for, especially, you know, depending on what somebody has been exposed to for their job or whatnot. Um, Another patient of mine was exposed to a lot of synthetic fertilizers and started having 
uh, neurologic symptoms that came secondary to that later in life. And so there it's, it's something that I think also gets overlooked a lot, but we have data on this. We have Western medicine, you know, traditional research on a lot of these topics. And I joke that the longer I practice, the more of an environmental advocate I am that really comes from the things that I see change people's health over time after what they've been exposed to. Absolutely. That was actually a huge part of my healing journey. So I, I agree that, uh, yeah, those heavy metals and learning how to detox them safely is so critical. Thank you for mentioning that. Can you share a success story or two with us today? Sure. Uh, let's see. So one woman came to me, she was actually a great example of somebody who had had really bad flares in her pregnancy. By the time I saw her, she had established a lot of the, the diet and lifestyle had cut out a lot of things. Um, diet soda, I remember was a really big thing. She swore that that may be part of what happened because of how much diet soda she had drank, whether that's true or not, I don't know. Uh, I still think it's a good thing to pull because we don't have a lot of research on the synthetic sugars. She came to me in a relatively stable state, but she did end up getting pregnant again, and that can be problematic. So the Next thing that we did when she felt like she was starting to get a flare was she was actually somebody that I did acupuncture with to try and get the flare down. One treatment in her case worked super, super well. We kept it up for a while just to make sure the flare stayed at bay. It was a great tool for her to add to her regimen though, to help prevent those flares from when they did happen. Uh, they did end up happening just in general with some of the other hormone changes too, but again, it ended up being a really, really great tool for her to have, to help keep things normalized and, and to prevent the pain that came along with it. That's fascinating. And can I ask a follow-up question there? Uh, I've never thought of using acupuncture at the start of a flare. Is that something that can work for a lot of issues that we have? I think acupuncture with any sort of neurologic issue is, is absolutely amazing. And that goes from anything from like numbness and tingling to a pinched nerve to something, you know, much greater than that, such as MS. I absolutely think it can. For people that are going into a flare, I think it's really good to establish how you do with acupuncture before you're in a flare. For some people, they need a more gentle treatment than instead of a more aggressive treatment. And so it's good to know what people respond to ahead of time. She was a case where I went into it anyways, but I just started really, really gentle. So for some people, it can make you slightly worse for a day or two and then make you better. Some people feel better right away. Some people are really sensitive and you only use a couple of the acupuncture pins. So I think it's really important to, if you can establish that before a flare, but I absolutely think it's a great tool for, for the MS community. Absolutely. Excellent. I'm going to keep that in mind for sure. Thank you. Yeah. And I think you had one other story you were hoping to share with us today. Yes. Uh, so this was a patient who had um, another auto, a different digestive autoimmune condition uh, who was somebody came to me had just started on some of the biologic medication, was just in an incredibly depleted state, still having issues. Uh, she was somebody who she had been married two weeks before I first started seeing her. And so 
she felt broken. I remember her telling me she felt like telling her husband that she felt like she'd married a lemon, which just broke my heart. Uh, she uh, was also one of those who wanted to be having babies yesterday. So as soon as she was married, she was hoping to proceed with that. Obviously life had different plans for her. Within a couple of months, we were able to get the flare really under control, get everything normalized, no more blood in the stool, have her feeling like she could get through the days okay. But then we had trouble. She was not able to get pregnant still at that point. And so that actually took a little bit more work to get her hormones back in balance. Uh, she had an underlying hormonal issue that we were able to differentiate. Once we got that fixed, she was able to get pregnant. She was also somebody that I ended up putting on low-dose naltrexone. And I think that's a really uh, important thing to mention as well, because it's a great tool for the MS community as well. Low-dose naltrexone can help with reducing basically how our immune system is reacting to things. It's also something that is very safe. It can be used in pregnancy and breastfeeding. So it is a tool that I employed in that case. She's now had her second kiddo who I just got to meet a few weeks ago and is doing incredibly well. And she's had nothing close to the flare she had when we very first started seeing her. If anything, she hasn't had any flares actually since I first started seeing her. How wonderful, what a gift you are. That's oh. so great. And, and I'm so glad also that you mentioned LDN because I'm hoping I can pick your brain just a little bit more about it, how it works, what it does, um, any, maybe a little bit of some research that you think is relevant. A lot of the research with low-dose naltrexone has been done on inflammatory bowel diseases. So when I first started using it, that was a lot of what I used it with. So naltrexone normally, it's normal use at 100 milligram doses plus is to actually help with both opiate and alcohol addiction. Uh, that was its, that it still is its primary use in traditional medicine. When I'm using it, I'm usually using it somewhere between two and four and a half milligrams. And at these lower doses, it has a different interaction with our opioid receptors. To be clear, it's not an opioid based drug. It's not addictive. If you had to stop it for any reason, there's no side effects to it but yet it has an interaction via those opioid receptors where it helps decrease basically immunity. So at this point in practice, I use it with a lot of autoimmune conditions, even something that's a little more simpler like autoimmune thyroid disease. If I'm having trouble with how high the antibodies are for a patient and I can't control their thyroid, LDN is sometimes something that I'll employ to help get that down. Uh, absolutely use it with inflammatory bowel diseases and definitely something that I would consider using, especially uh, in MS if there is a particular pain picture that's going along with somebody, it would absolutely be something I would consider using. That's great. Now, I, I know a couple of people have mentioned to me that they've struggled finding a doctor that would prescribe it to them. Is there a particular doctor that prescribes that or could a variety? A variety could. The, the doses that we use is usually made by a compounding pharmacy. So sometimes I find MDs or DOs have a little bit less familiarity with prescribing through a compounding pharmacy. So that may be a little bit of where the issue is. Uh, I've had some docs like at the Stanford Pain Clinic be okay prescribing it and comfortable prescribing it. So I have had a few patients come in on it. Naturopaths uh, who have prescribing capabilities in the states where they do are a great resource for that. I feel like that's something we actually are educated in. 
So it's, I think it would be a good question. Like if you're interviewing a practitioner, it's, it's something you want to discuss. I think it's an important question to ask if you, if it's something you're interested in. I think there's also a really great resource um, as far as the research around LDN. Uh, it's a website called the LDN Research Trust. So when patients want to just know a little bit more about it or understand it a little bit more, that's often actually where I'll send them to, to just do a little bit of research. And I did that after we first spoke and learned a ton. So I, I second that recommendation. It was incredibly informative. And uh, in fact, the way the website is laid out, it's really user-friendly and you can find personal experiences with people using it for the reason you're looking for. So uh, there's a wealth of information there. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. And I will say, I think it's important. I don't think LDN on its own is a fix-all and I am not ever just prescribing LDN. I think it's always a multifactorial approach, but I absolutely think it is an amazing tool to be able to add to a treatment plan for patients. That's great. Thank you. Uh, I also am really curious to hear your perspective about supplementation and supplement safety. That is also, you've got so many good questions. Uh, supplements are definitely something that I am very picky about. So the FDA does not provide a lot of oversight to supplements. And so there was a study done years ago, uh, I would say it's at least 10 years old at this point, um, by the state of New York, where they were looking at single herb supplements from five of the big box chain stores. So it was single things like garlic, saw palmetto, uh, echinacea, on and on. And when they looked at five different brands for five different herbs, only about one in five of the brands actually had in its capsules what it said it did on the label. They found rice powder, house plants. It was, it was really a little bit disturbing. So a lot of the companies that I tend to recommend are ones that have some third-party quality control testing done that they pay for on their own. And so for me, that's really, really important. And there are times that I'll have patients come in on, on certain vitamins from certain companies, and I will literally tell them to pour them out in my office because of the quality, the ingredients, the fillers that can also be problematic. So I'm, I'm very picky about that. Thank you so much. So if someone is listening and thinking, oh my gosh, I need to talk to Dr. Casey, how could they contact you or find a naturopath near them? What should they do? Sure. So I think to start from big to small. So if you are somewhere else in the U.S., we do have a, a national association called the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians called AANP is the abbreviation. So that would be a great place if you're somewhere else in the country. In California, our local association is the California Naturopathic Doctor Association. Again, another great resource to see who's in your community and actually licensed, as I mentioned. And then for me personally, I my office is in San Jose, California. I am doing all telemedicine at this point since the pandemic, which actually makes it a little more accessible for a lot of patients right now. Uh, the office is called Naturopathic Family Health. Uh, you can always call and do a 10 minute consult with me if you have questions, concerns about your individual case, you're more than welcome to call. That is wonderful. I might just do that. Thank you so much for being here today and for sharing your wisdom and your gift of healing with us. I really can't thank you enough. Absolutely. I'm, I'm happy to help and hopefully get some information out there that'll be helpful for others on their journey of health.
Absolutely. I would say you've just done that. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you, Katie. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Dr. Casey. Once again, to find a certified naturopath near you, you can visit AANP, which is the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians, at www.naturopathic.org. In California, you can visit the California Naturopathic Doctor Association at www.calnd.org. Or if you'd like to reach out to Dr. Casey specifically, you can access her site directly which is www.caseyberkabile.com. For your convenience, I'll post these links for our misunderstood Patreon listeners. My hope is that after listening to this episode, we all, one, better understand the naturopathic approach to health and how to find a qualified practitioner like Dr. Casey. Two, that we understand how a naturopathic doctor like Dr. Casey can help us identify the root causes of our symptoms and help us thrive as people living with MS. And three, that we also leave this episode thinking about how we can each embody the incredible strength of teamwork that the tall fescue, Bermuda, or Kentucky bluegrass displays in our own lives and within our larger MS community. The next flock meeting will be on Saturday, June 5th. At the flock meeting, we'll discuss this episode and other episodes released between now and then. And we'll just spend some virtual time together supporting one another as we all strive to live well with MS. If you're not yet a flock member but would like to be, join us. We meet via Zoom the first Saturday of each month. You can learn more and join us by visiting patreon.com msflock. As always, I encourage all listeners to reach out with questions, comments, future podcast topics, or guest ideas via email to mymsflock at gmail.com. Sincerely, if you're listening and there's something you're struggling with that you'd like some help with, please reach out. I'd love to help by researching and sharing potential solution avenues. Lastly, remember... As we travel through life with MS, we're certain to hit some turbulence. We'll get through it, especially if we're flying together, supporting one another. Thank you for listening, and until next time, be well.